Previously, he was known as the only reason people watched Fox News. Now, he's known as the campaign killer. <laughs> some candidates were ready, some not so much. What does this mean for the Republican candidates going forward? Also, are abortions and trans surgeries really necessary for mm. military readiness? And the typically even keel Bishop Barron throws a fiery rebuke at a brother bishop over his suspicious World Youth Day comments. All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. God bless everyone. Welcome back to The Loopcast, where we talk faith, culture, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Everyone's favorite co-host is out, unfortunately. Erica, enjoy your vacation. But we have a great substitution recurring co-host hilarious guy <laughs> we have peter wolfgang president of family institute of connecticut action peter thanks for taking the time today tom thanks for having me i hear you're you're coming in from florida is that correct yeah so the organization that i run we're part of a network of family policy councils they're called and once a year we have a conference and uh in our wisdom we decided to have it in uh, south florida in july so I'm coming to you from the hotel. Yeah. So was that was that your decision, or who do I have? Who do we have to blame for that one? Definitely not my decision. But what everyone's talking about, what we're going to talk about here, we're going to talk about the Conservative Family Leadership Summit. Uh, for those that want a simpler explanation, it was the Tucker Carlson buzzsaw. Tucker Carlson, I think, genuinely ended the political career of at least two men at one summit. It was unbelievable to watch. And I think the starting point here is, and for those that didn't know what it is, Tucker basically. Uh, sponsored by the Blaze, he got on and asked questions to six presidential hopefuls. Uh, one notable absence, of course, was uh, former President Donald Trump. He decided to skip, but we had DeSantis, Haley, Vivek, uh, Vivek Ramswamy, uh, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, and I'm missing one. Oh, Tim Scott. And so he got them one by one. He asked them some really tough questions. Some people were up to the task, some weren't. Uh, but first off, this one felt really different. And I wanted to ask Josh, why do you think Tucker is so captivating and made for such interesting interviews for average Americans? For so long, we've had left-wing news outlets as moderators at Republican presidential primary debates. Now, this wasn't actually a debate. What happened was, I, I've been to this family leader event before, and they have an, uh, an opportunity for the host to basically interview the candidates. And the idea is, it gets them to break free of just getting up there and doing a 20-minute st uh, stump speech. They actually have to ask questions and think on their feet. And uh, I've seen different hosts do this before, and I saw Bob Vanderplatz. He's the head of the family leader in Iowa, a big evangelical Christian. I like the guy. And he was brilliant by getting Tucker Carlson to be the host of this event. And Tucker, I honestly truly think, no matter what, he's a very polarizing figure in many ways, but like he just wants to get to the bottom of it. He's not playing favorites. He's just like, wait a minute, Asa Hutchinson, he's the former governor <laughs> yeah. of Arkansas. And all right, sometimes I like to call him the governor of Walmart because that's all he really cares about. <laughs> and it's like, he gets up there and he asks them, wait a minute, why do you believe in the chemical castration of minors? I mean, just eviscerates Asa Hutchinson. I mean, Asa Hutchinson had 0.1% chance walking into this family leader event. I mean, it, I mean, he's got a better chance of trying to land on Mars. I mean, this guy was just Tucker. Now, the funny thing is, when Tucker was booted off of Fox News, remember, Tom, we were talking about this. We said, what would Tucker do? I could see him running for president, I said, but I, 
honestly, we thought he might be a good moderator at these events because he could kind of cut through it. He sees the good in Trump. He sees the good in DeSantis. He sees the, the flaws in each of these candidates as well. And he gives it to him. He answers it to him. Uh, makes these guys step up and explain themselves. So I, I, I thought it was a really good show. So the man who, who cuts my checks uh, and his infinite wisdom, uh, he said a couple episodes ago, this one's for the deep cut loop casters, that Tucker Carlson would make a fantastic debate moderator. He would actually be great if he ran for president with nothing to lose, you know, and just just get out there and pretend like you're a moderator yourself, you know, because the moderators to get for these debates are terrible. So he could just get up there and he could, you know, ask tough questions to DeSantis and ask t- tough questions to Trump. And and then add the other guys that are like sitting at four percent, like, why are you even here? You know, just I think it'd be entertaining. I think he'd do a great, great job. I think he'd I'd stay watch focused that on. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'd watch it anyway, but it'd be much more entertaining. Can he tell the future? I don't know. Another thing he said, though, <laughs> Tucker Carlson may run for president. So that would make a very, after destroying all the candidates, it would make it very interesting. Uh, Peter, were there any other moments at this uh, summit that really stuck out to you? Well, you know, I had a gut reaction and then I had a, a more sort of reflective reaction. When I first saw Tucker's interviews, I think maybe the two famous to come out were his interview with Aza Hutchinson and then his interview with Mike Pence. And I felt like I had kind of a counterintuitive reaction to everyone else in that I felt like uh, certainly not with Aza Hutchinson. He had it coming with the trans stuff. But with with Mike Pence, I felt like it was a little bit unfair to Pence because he was Tucker uh, throughout the day was focused on January 6th on Ukraine. And that didn't really strike me as social conservative topics. And it was a social conservative conference. And that struck me as more like, Tucker issues rather than specifically social conservative issues. So I felt like it was a little unfair to Mike Pence, but I I thought about it more. And first of all, I mean, regarding, you know, uh, January 6th in Ukraine, regarding Ukraine, I mean, to, to some extent that actually is a social conservative issue when you think about it, because we've got, when you look at the 21st century, um, you know, to a certain extent, like interventionist neocon foreign policy abroad really killed social conservatism at home. In a way, you could almost say that the Iraq war gave us gay marriage. So social conservatives should be concerned about Ukraine and are, are focused on it to the detriment of things happening here at home. And that was the point of, of Tucker's question. Um, so, and then the other thing, as I, as I went you know, back, <laughs> as I, I mean, let me just interrupt you there for a second, Peter, because it reminds me, because like Mike Pence, of course, the person you're talking about, and he totally caved on religious freedom as yes. governor of Indiana, but he never caved on his re- relentless support for neocon interventions for our policies. But <laughs> continue onward. Oh, I, I, I think your point is very well taken. And I think Tucker detected that. And that was what caused me to have kind of like a second wind, a second thought as I was watching Tucker, because then I watched the interviews that came later on where like, I'm like, why didn't he give Nikki Haley a harder time? And why did... Why did um, why did Ron DeSantis do so wonderful? And I went back and watched those those interviews with Hutchinson and Pence. And one thing I picked up on is Hutchinson and Pence. They're from an older generation and they have a way of talking where they kind of talk around the issue. And they're sort of filibustering you, not really answering the question. And I think Tucker's BS detector went off on that. And he was as polite with them, frankly, as he was with the other candidates. 
But I think he sensed that they're not really answering the question. And I think this goes to your point, Josh, about like, what is it that we conservatives see in Tucker that he, he has something that the legacy media does not, where he really gets to the heart of the issue. He's talking about things that no one else is. And these like the, this ruling class that we've had in both parties going back 20 or more years that I think have really let us down, have really led the country astray. Tucker picks up on that and he can articulate it better than any of us. And he zeroed in on it with those two candidates, that they were part of that class, that attitude. And I don't think, and by the way, I'm a much bigger fan of Ron DeSantis than I am of Nikki Haley. But I don't think, I think they were speaking more specifically in response to Tucker's questions. And that's why they didn't get quite as big a uh, a beating from them that Tucker did. But their beating was kind of self-inflicted. I thought Tucker was very good, uh, treated all the candidates the same. But look, I mean, Mike Pence, and you're absolutely right, he blew that Indiana thing but it, with the religious liberty many years ago. But this goes to a point regarding Pence's exchange with Tucker, the, the part of it that went viral. Mike Pence is a guy that's been in politics for how many decades? How do you answer Tucker? When Tucker Carlson puts this question to you saying, gee, you're interested in Ukrainian tanks, where, where is the interest in the United States? I don't hear it. All of our cities have gotten worse in, in recent years. And Mike Pence's first reaction is to say, that's not my concern. Dude, you've been in politics for how long? And I get that if you if you take the question, I almost feel like Mike Pence had kind of a Pope Francis moment where if you if you want to look at the full context, it's not as bad as your first reaction to it. But that was still kind of on you. And with Pope Francis, we can say, well, he's Latin American. It's a different culture. It's a different way of speaking. I don't know what Mike Pence's excuse was. But even if you look at the full context, <laughs> Mike Pence, the benefit of the doubt, I don't know what on earth he was doing by responding to that question by saying, that's not my concern. So he got the beating he deserved and it was self-inflicted. Mike Pence is a, Mike Pence is a 2005 Republican. I mean, that's just yeah. it. He's stuck in 2005. Yeah, and I don't uh, even I know mean, if there's forget like, about it. I, I, people like extend that to like personal attacks on him. I'm not, I don't even think necessarily that means he's a bad person or a bad guy. It just is, this is just an indication we're in a new era of communication. We're in a new era of politics. If you can't sit on a podcast and talk for a couple hours about why you believe the things that you believe and how you would enact that into law, then you really shouldn't be running the country, right? I, Here's the thing. Back in 1996, former Vice President Dan Quayle decided he's going to run for president, and he just completely burnt out right away. I mean, mm -hmm. people remembered him as like a gaff guy. He was put on the ticket for youth or whatever. Couldn't spell potato, although I think that was, by the way, not fair. Um <laughs> But then Mike Pence, former vice president, like, oh, he's got a potential. He's going nowhere. It's not just that the hardcore Trumpers hate him over January 6th. That's, that's already starting from a bad spot. But that, the fact that he's still stuck in 2005, he hasn't shifted or adapted at all, is to his detriment. In fact, if you look at the latest fundraising reports, the FBC, he is going to struggle. He probably will not get 40,000 donations. Why does that matter? The RNC set up a criteria for how to get into the the first presidential debate that's coming up here next month in Milwaukee. You need to get to show that you're a viable national campaign and you're not just like a billionaire running for office. You need to get 40,000 donors from across the country to chip into your campaign and to donate to get on that stage. And Mike Pence is probably not going to get on that stage because there's just not 40,000 people in the country to support a vice president of the United States. A former, It's amazing to me. Now, by the way, did you hear about this, Peter? Like some of the other candidates are trying to get into that debate stage 
and they're totally doing these crazy gimmicks, right? So like the governor of North Dakota, Doug Bagram, he's giving people $20 gift cards oh, no. if they donate a dollar to his campaign. It's all just a scam to get into the debate stage. And so he's the guy who's like, we shouldn't be talking about abortion and we should try to focus on all, all you know, not these cultural issues and stuff like that. And like, talk about, uh, again, that like North Dakota governor, just like Mike Pence, stuck in 2005, you're totally going to give us, at, at, to 12, 2005, 2012, it's a, it's a path to, to defeat. Right, and if I could move the conversation here because people are going to do fundraising tricks and it's actually really interesting to look specifically into the numbers for a lot of these candidates, where they're at, are they burning cash, do they have the cash? It's a good indication of how their campaign looks going forward. But that being said, somewhat were there yeah. were there any moments? So we've mentioned people that maybe faltered. So Asa Pence for sure. Tim Scott kind of gave an awkward performance. Um, he did all right. Okay, okay. But um, who who's resonating right now in terms of the Republican Party after this and going forward? You know, who do you think has momentum? It's still a two-man race. It started a two-man race. It's going to continue to be a two-man race. I don't, I don't foresee it. The only thing, you know, there's all this talk for the last three, four months about, you know, it's Trump v. DeSantis, in other words. And the, all these reports of the last three months where DeSantis, you know, oh, DeSantis isn't doing as well, and he's got to change things. I think part of that's true. I mean, I think he's got to refocus his energy. I think he could. he felt it was smart just to kind of keep quiet and bide your time during all the DOJ indictment stuff. Um, but I do think he's need, he needs to articulate a better vision of what, you know, what he wants to do as president, not just brag about the good stuff you're doing in Florida. You need to articulate what you're doing and why you would be better at it because you're not going to, you know, and get a few jabs in there. Like, yeah, because I'm not going to listen to Ivanka all day long and, to, and Jared to tell me what to do. Um, I, I do think the momentum, though, is, you know, has shifted a little bit more towards Trump. And, you know, there's just l little data points. At fundraising is not, it really, it doesn't tell me a whole picture. I mean, fundraising tells me that there, all these other candidates aren't really serious unless they can really bring in a lot of money. But ultimately, when it comes down to Trump v. DeSantis, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the, one of those two guys, and it's going to be the person who can better articulate what's the future for the Republican Party and what's the future for the country. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I live in Michigan, and all six of the Republican congressmen from Michigan uh, endorsed Trump. Um, that's that's interesting. I mean, in other words, you know, Michigan's an early primary state. I think it's like the fifth state to vote, so it's not insignificant. It's pretty. It's an early state, and I think the fact that those six Republican congressmen looked at it and thought, "Well, if I don't endorse Trump and I endorse someone else, I invite the wrath of like twenty percent of the base that just loves Trump from here." you know, to the end of time. So it's just safer for me to endorse Trump. And so, but again, that's a kind of a sign of momentum. As, as the summer's been going on, Trump's been gathering a little bit more steam and DeSantis, you know, needs to uh, chalk up a couple of victories. And fundraising, I just don't think is going to be this big of a deal. Uh, we got to see, I think the next real big data point is going to be uh, that debate in Milwaukee in August. Um, DeSantis has got to come out with guns ablaze. There's a lot of people that said that uh, Vivek Ramswamy had a good performance, and a lot of people, he's like the TikTok candidate, like on social media, he's getting a lot of numbers. People seem to like his energy, and he thinks about things a little bit differently. Any chance there? Is it still two-man race to you? What do you think, Peter? I, I think, uh, you know, he's very high energy, but it, with, the, with the obvious exception of Trump himself, 
president of the United States is not an entry level position. Uh, to I, I mean, I don't think the guy wasn't there something about he he actually went many years without even voting, but he wants to be president of the United States. I think he's a very interesting figure. Um, you know, he first came across my radar when he was showing up in the Wall Street Journal attacking woke corporations a few years ago. And I think that stuff's all great. But I, I really think I agree with Josh that it's a two man race. I I feel like, um, well, I, I'll tell you, I, I thought the most interesting part for DeSantis was when he said he would have fired Fauci. I think what he needs to do is lean into the ways in which he could be Trump 2.0. Like, I, I think we have to talk. He has to talk more about Trump's last year in office, about, you know, what happened to the country under COVID and after the George Floyd riots and who was in charge while, meanwhile, what was hap what was happening in Florida. I think that's that would be the route for him. But at the end of the day, there's a charisma gap there. I mean, I, I think Trump has um, he has such a personality and such a hold on a, a portion of the primary voters that that that's what DeSantis has to overcome. And I know Josh has said in the past that he thinks it's good that we have all these candidates, like let's throw it all against the wall. I'm I'm more of the attitude of I think we'd have a better race if it was just kind of Trump versus DeSantis. I feel like all the other candidates are kind of detracting from that because because a lot of these guys really are not serious. The one different one I think is kind of Chris Christie, who isn't showing up anywhere, but he seemed like he was he seemed to indicate he wanted to be on a kamikaze run against Trump on the debate stage. But going back to Josh's point about you need 40,000 uh, donors and stuff, I don't see him even being on the you know, stage. That's not going to work. I mean, he did that uh, little, quote, little Marco yeah. last time. He just like, you know, punctured that balloon and poof, that candidacy was over. And he's like, I'll do that again. I'll do it for, I don't even know who he wants to destroy. Does he want to destroy Trump or does he want to destroy DeSantis? I, I can't tell. But that's not going to, if he tries to go after DeSantis like that, DeSantis will be like, so why are you in favor of puberty blockers yeah. for kids? You know, yeah, are what do, you in the right political parties? Like, what you do I mean, in your state during COVID? I mean, it's pretty easy to yeah. Push and back and on DeSantis would be like, "I'm busy building bridges, literally after hurricanes." And you <laughs> shut them down, so I don't know. If... He, right. He seems like he's aiming for Trump, though, don't you think? I mean, I guess I think he's aiming for a, a, a seat at MSNBC. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's what I, I just don't. And that's the thing with like, uh, you know, all these other candidates. I don't mind. I mean, to me, like the idea that everyone's like, oh, well, if all these other candidates didn't run, then it could be a man, you know, mano a mano contest between Trump and DeSantis. Then maybe DeSantis might win. I'm like, you know what? Look, all these other, I don't think DeSantis, if DeSantis beats Trump, if he convinces enough people that he's the better candidate, it's not going to be other candidates who are at four, five, three percent aren't going to be the big deal. I think ultimately, it's got to come down to that. Now, here's the thing. Trump at the beginning of this year, I think, was too much into the 2020 election grievance stuff. And he's kind of slowed that down a little bit, thankfully. And I think that's another reason why his poll numbers have started to tick up a little bit. Because if he keeps complaining about how the election was stolen from me, you know, what? I get it. You're going to say it every once in a while. And, you know, that's fine because the audience does like that to an extent. But if you focus on that only and not like, Hey, what are you going to do in the next four years? And I don't agree with the idea that Trump can't win again. I disagree with that. I think he can win again. I just said, I've said before, he's got to find a way to win the independence in states like Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. He's got to, it's, it's, he can't just win Republican voters. I know it will become a binary race. You have to choose between the two. 
And I guess some Republicans are like, well, if the economy goes completely horrible, then finally they'll we'll get rid of Biden and get Trump back in there. That's a risk. You know, the economy might not be bad. It might not the, the shoe might not drop on the economy till after the election year's over. Inflation is kind of chilled out a little bit. I mean, it's still going up like five, six percent, but it's not like nine, ten percent anymore. So, you know, you can't you know, can't count on the economy to you know win you an election. We know that already. So, um, but this this idea that Trump can't win. I, I have to push back, and not that anyone here is saying it, but like, um, I just think that DeSantis is a strong candidate. He turned a red, uh, uh, a purple state into a red state. I want to see iron sharpen iron, and whichever these two guys wins, let's go. So I have a different question for you regarding Trump, Josh. I agree with you that Trump could win. The, the theory that's sometimes bandied about regarding Trump is that even if he does win, he can't uh, deliver the sort of policy victories that he had in his first term because he's burned so many bridges that no one of any value is going to be working for him. What do you think of that? I mean, if Trump were smart and he got, I mean, which is, you know, who knows if he would be politically astute enough to do this. He's very smart and clever in many ways. But if I'm Trump and I win the nomination, I would just turn to DeSantis and say, hey, by the way, I'm establishing my residency in New Jersey and I'm making you my running mate. And just yeah. have, trust DeSantis to kind of run the show for him and trust him in, instinctively because he's got that mindset of making sure you're going to get populist policies put in place. That's what I would do if I were Trump. That's an interesting thought. We'll see if yeah. they ever come together. Um, so, yeah, we'll see how that one plays out. We got to run now into abortion into the military. So this is something we've been very, very close to. And like I've said, we've talked to Senator Tuberville, who's currently holding up military nominations over this. But there's uh, something called the NDAA that we got to talk about here. It's good for everyone in the audience to really understand what's going on right now, because both sides are pointing fingers over politicizing the military is what I'm hearing. So the NDAA, uh, it's the National Defense Authorization Act. It's passed every year. It basically determines policies and funding for United States defense agencies. Uh, so what's happening now is uh, it was recently passed by the House, but it was passed with two amendments. And the amendments are important to note. So Amendment 5, it was um, prohibiting the Secretary of Defense for paying for or reimbursing expenses relating to abortion services. And Amendment 10, uh, it is uh, ending taxpayer coverage of trans, quote-unquote, surgeries and chemical hormone treatments, quote-unquote, on service members and their families. And so the idea is, how do either of these things contribute to military readiness? And so if we pass an amendment to make sure these aren't happening then we're fine passing this. And the reason that they had to be passed is because the Biden administration has made both of those things priorities already in the military. And so it was passed by the House. It's going to the Senate. It's most likely going to face a very uphill battle, uh, probably will not be passed. Um, so now both sides are kind of pointing fingers as to, well, you're the fault. You're at fault for the reason why the military is not getting funding or no, you're at fault because you did this. Uh, Josh, where do we currently stand with this amendment? And who is really responsible for the fact that we can't get an NDAA passed? It's Joe Biden and Lloyd Austin, the the Secretary of Defense, uh, President of the United States, who are both claiming, they both claim to be Catholic. They're the ones who initiated this pro-abortion policy. And it all came down because after you have Roe v. Wade overturned, right? What if you're a service member at Fort Hood in Texas and you want to uh, uh, murder your child through abortion? Uh, well, you can't do that in Texas anymore after six weeks because they protect life in Texas. God bless them. And so the military is going to say to that service member, hey, we will reimburse your travel to go to New Mexico 
or Kansas, where you can properly murder your baby, unfortunately. And we're saying, now, wait a minute, now, hold on a second. The Hyde Amendment prohibits the use of taxpayer dollars for elective abortions like this. You can't do that. Um, that's always been the policy. That's been the policy of you know the Trump administration, the uh, Obama administration, the Clinton administration, Bush, both Bushes. This is, it's been like this for over 45 years. You can't spend taxpayer dollars on abortions like this. And so Biden's trying to pretend in his secretary of defense, like, oh, well, you know, military readiness and da da da, some excuse. And then they just started paying for this stuff in total violation of federal law. And so God bless Senator uh, Tuberville for standing up and saying, we're not going to do this. And he's on the Senate Armed Service Committee. And so he's able to put holds on nominees. And he's like, I'm putting a hold on every nominee going through because if you want this passed, if you want this policy, you have to change federal law. But until you do that, I'm not going to play ball. And th this NDAA, what you mentioned, it's the, it's the funding of our military. It has to, it's a must-pass bill. You can't not have a military, right? And so that's the idea behind the Republic, pro-life Republicans are like, we want the policy the way it has been for the last 45 years. We don't want the politicization of the military. We don't want taxpayers paying for abortions. And we don't like the fact that you're using our military as an excuse to push your abortion agenda. So God bless Senator Tub uh, Tommy Tuberville, Tuberville, and we need other senators to stand with him. I think he's doing a great job. Yeah. Tuberville confirmed. It's yeah, kind of what's up, but it looks I, like Tuberville. I, I always say it wrong. <laughs> I know. All good. All Sorry, good. Coach. What's, yeah, yeah. what's the but, correct um, pronunciation? Tuberville. Tuberville. Okay. Yeah. Co or you could just call him yeah. Coach because uh, I spent some time in Auburn. But uh, so- Another thing that in this, I want your thoughts on this actually, Peter. So John Kirby, he is uh, the in charge of communications uh, for the Department of Defense, essentially. And so he got in front of uh, the press and was asked a question about, okay, so why is abortion necessary for military re readiness? Why can't we just, you know, keep the Hyde Amendment and then, you know, keep the military as it was? Why is abortion essential? And he had a, it was it was a very how, how do I describe it? It was hard to watch. Like, it looked like he was almost excited. He asked, you know, I'm so glad you asked and I'm really excited to tell you. And he went on to say that it's a sacred obligation, direct quote, sacred obligation of the U.S. military to provide health care in the form of abortion to female service members. It would be somehow irreligious to not do this service for our military members. What, what is I think he specifically followed up with we're losing talent. Uh, Peter, what do you think he, he's saying here by saying we're losing talents and it's a sacred obligation? Well, this is what we've heard all, all the way through, right? That we need to, women, women need to be able to kill their own children in order to be available for their corporate overlords and now also to, uh, to serve in the military. I think what some Republicans should have said, you know, the issue that should have been brought up is, 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 he, is what he's really saying here is the reason abortion is so sacred to the military is because there's a culture of sexual assault in the military and you need to cover up the rapes and put that back on the Democrats. I think that, wow. that that's what they ought to think about doing since we're the, we know that the media uh, and the left are very concerned about that. I would have tied those two issues together because I think there might be something there. But Tuberville is right to make such an issue of this and the fact that the, the communications director talked about it as a sacred right. I mean, this is, this is a civilization-defining issue, I think. As Josh said, it was the Biden administration that started this. And when you think about it, why do why do men go to war in the first place? They go to war to protect women and children. 
So now we have a, a military that's going to pay to kill the children. Uh, you know, right. We started down this road that, <laughs> and I'm not saying necessarily that women shouldn't be in the military. I don't think they should be in combat. I don't think they should be in combat positions, frankly. But I, I think we've gone too far down, uh, down the looking glass or whatever, whatever you want to call it, down the rabbit hole into madness in terms of why you have a military in the first place, why men go to war. And this is a fight that needs to be had because, I, I mean, it's, 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 it has to do with the very definition of our civilization. I mean, Tuberville, we're not the ones politicizing this. These guys started this. And I'm almost kind of glad they did because I think there's wider discussions here about why does why does a free nation going back to Athens, it's almost Victor Davis Hanson level, like why does a free nation going back to Athens uh, have to take up arms on, on occasion, have to leave their farms, leave their family? We're not Sparta. We're not we're not a military society, but we have to do it once in a while. Why do we have to do it to protect the women and children back home? So they're they're subverting the entire reason why a free people has a military in the first place. And that conversation needs to be had. Well, and we want military members who don't kill innocent people. Yeah, it's crazy too. Like <laughs> it wasn't long ago where you you watch old black and white footage of people going off to World War II, kissing their wives and children goodbye and going to, to put their lives on the line. And uh, that seems almost like a bygone era it's almost like things have gotten so confusing now because we haven't even touched the trans care issue because the trans care issue is also insane. I mean, we're talking about not just paying for it for service members, but for their families as well. And we're not even getting into the philosophical problems with that as well. But I think it goes back to why I think Tucker's really compelling. It's like we're talking about good and evil and the philosophy behind military readiness, you know, and, and why why we need to go to war if if we can't if we're going to war and we can't protect our own children and our own women. It's like what a lot of people say, like, why are we spending billions and billions of dollars to give money, you know, to Ukraine to help them get arms when we have so many problems here in the United States? Like, what is going on? We don't even know what a woman is. We have a Supreme Court right. justice who doesn't know what a woman is. Like, we have a lot more problems we need to work on here at home before we try to solve other people's problems. So, I mean, it's not just a populist bromide. I, I mean, yeah, it's really a real do. problem. I feel like the, yeah. the Republicans in standing up on this are actually standing against the feminization or at least the unnatural feminization of our military when it comes to the trans stuff. That's been such a bizarre trend to watch, like the military recruitment ads yeah. that have bizarre anime feminized type people. In, like it just seems so It's all by design. And I know it it's is all by design. It is by design. Correct. But like if we're not willing to take steps to address that right now, we could be in a world of hurt 10 years from now. Well, and again, it just gets to the one of the biggest problems we have in our society today is that the left wing, the far left wing, is so corrupt and so evil in a way that they just absolutely, they play Calvin ball, okay? So Calvin and Hobbes, and Calvin and Hobbes would play, the cartoon characters would play Calvin ball, which is you just start playing and you make rules up as you go along. That's how the Democratic Party has operated for the last 50, 60 years or whatever with increasing, you know, insanity. And so Joe Biden just says, oh, you, you overturn Roe v. Wade, well, we'll just provide abortion for service members when they can fly all around the country and abort their baby. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's obviously unconstitutional because Hyde Amendment federal law prohibits that. And he just does it by a stroke of a pen. It's like, you keep doing that, and eventually the other side's going to be like, hmm, we're sick of asymmetrical warfare. We'll get a president elected, and he'll just say, school choice, coast to coast, every kid. Bye. See you later, teachers unions. We're not going to put up with this anymore because I'm so sick. I'm like, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. And they just 
they, they, they bork through every rule and regulation and custom and law, and they don't care. It's like, what constitution do you have? What, what governing document do we have? There's no governing document anymore. These people are completely making things up as they go along. And you see this, this, this is why you get the rise of stuff like integralism and Catholic academics circles, you know, Patrick Deneen, because people on the other side are like, well, we're, we're de- maybe, maybe this is what the American regime is. And, and the whole thing starts to unravel. And I think that's one of the problems with abortion and the LGBT stuff. As bad as it is in itself, it's not just by itself. It actually strikes at the rules that we have as a, as a people but that have governed us since the nation's founding. Well, I mean, remember Scalia would talk about how abortion was the one constitutional thing that was uberales. Yep. You know, any constitutional principle that we would have would have to be subjugated to the abortion regime agenda on demand. So anytime, well, well, we, you know, well, we can't do that because of the rule of law or you can't do that because it didn't matter. Like it would just bulldoze over every other argument. Like we must have abortion on demand all nine months. It, nothing else matters. Yeah. You know, so we see that play out, but it's a scorched earth policy. And that's the problem. Like, I do think they, the left has this tyrannical authoritarian streak, which they always blame and project on us, which is lovely. <laughs> but the problem is there, I feel like their, their hearts are so corrupted that it's like the danger of tyranny is that it actually corrupts, not just the people who support it, but even its combatants. Cause you're like, man, gosh, these guys are so crazy. We have to do something to stop them. And you know, you can't just hope, well, we'll just elect all these senators and do all this stuff. You start to get a little bit more thinking outside the box of how are you going to keep this civilization yep. together? Yep. Yeah. Completely agree. And so we're going to segment now into church corner, uh, specifically, Peter, we kind of saw some you wrote on this and we're very impressed and want to hear your two cents. So to set it up here, uh, these were comments made by Bishop Americo Aguiar. It actually was a Twilight Zone from last week's episode. For so, for the real listeners, you guys know. Uh, so now uh, he is the auxiliary bishop of Lisbon, Portugal, and that is where the upcoming World Youth Day is. He made some, and he's going to be a new cardinal. Yep. Yay! Yep. <laughs> for those who listened to the last episode, you know that as well. Josh is a little frustrated with that. Um, Still mad. So essentially, he he made some comments about how the intention of World Youth Day is not to convert anyone to Christ. Uh, that's the the quickest summary. That's a direct quote of his comments. And so Bishop Barron actually wrote an article and it, it made a lot of uh, headlines that Bishop Barron wrote a response article to it, basically saying, I'm going to speak at it. I can tell you my only intention is to convert souls to Christ. It was a really stunning rebuke of another brother bishop. And Peter, you had some good insight on this and I'd like you to share. Why was it so significant that Bishop Barron himself wrote this kind of rebuke? Bishop Barron never does this. I wrote about this on my Facebook. And some people responded, well, no, sometimes Bishop Barron goes back at the National Catholic Reporter or the Catholic left or what have you. Bishop Barron never goes back at his public, at his, at his brother bishops in such a direct and public manner as he did uh, at this uh, Word on Fire article. He went right back at the auxiliary bishop in Portugal, who will soon be a cardinal, and, uh, and really ripped his logic. And really said, you know, John Paul II would be turning over in his grave, or I think his exact language was, he would give you a look that would stop a train. That's how Bishop Barrett would have uh, <laughs> described John Paul II's, what his reaction would have been to the idea that, as, as the Bishop of uh, Portugal was saying, of Lisbon, that um, the idea of World Youth Day is 
not to convert people to Christ or the Catholic Church, that we're all just going to celebrate our differences. And I think it's significant that it was Bishop Barron that responded to this for a couple of reasons, Tom. Um, number one, uh, there's a handful of bishops that you kind of expect it from. Like if it's Joseph Strickland in Tyler, Texas, if it's Archbishop Vigano in hiding, if it's the um, Cardinal Burke in retirement or the, the bishop in Kazakhstan, Schneider, is it? I mean, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, no, we expect that. Those are the guys that normally push back against Team Francis. But Bishop Barron is about as level-headed a bishop as it gets. He's, he represents the vital center of Catholicism in the United States. He has critics to both his left and his right, and he has those critics in part because he's so good at what he does, because he gets out there. And I don't know any other bishop who mixes it up with the wider culture the way Bishop Barron does. I don't know any other bishop in the United States, frankly, with the intellectual wherewithal who could do it, who could get invited to give a talk inside the headquarters of Google, inside the headquarters of Facebook. Now, personally, being kind of on the Catholic right myself, I don't always agree with the way Bishop Barron does it. But even, even in my disagreements, I have to recognize them for the very small quibbles that they are. They're, they're actually... Um, the byproduct of the fact that this is a guy who's doing what a bishop should be doing. This is an apostle who gets out there, and he's very careful about it. He's very level-headed. He's very nuanced. He's very intellectual. So to have a man of Bishop Barron's stature write that article he did, he went right back at the guy, uh, at his brother bishop, and the last line was something like, and uh, by the way, I'm going to be giving, it was like a line directly back at his brother Bishop Aguilar. He's like, by the way, Bishop Aguilar, I'm going to be giving five talks at World Youth Day, and every one of them is going to be about evangelization. So there. He didn't say, he didn't say so there. Drops the hammer. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it, it's really, I have to wonder, when you look at the wider picture of what's happening in the church right now, and the three of us are lay people on a podcast, we can shoot our mouths off all we want. It's a little different when it's the bishops, and it's even more different, I would argue, when it's Bishop Barron. And when you have these synods coming up, about the, you know, the synodality or whatever it is, when you have, frankly, um, at some point there has to be, a, we don't know when, but at some point there will be another papal conclave, right? Cardinal uh, George Pell died late last year, and it turned out he was, the, he was the author behind this memo that did not have a name on it that was circulating among the cardinals about Pope Francis. And in Cardinal Pell's words, again, if I say it, who cares? Who am I? But the late Cardinal Pell, who's a hero to many, talked about this pontificate as a, as a disaster, as a catastrophe, and was very specific and, and very um, precise as to why it wasn't all over the map. It wasn't just shooting his mouth off. And what we need from the next pope, what needs to happen in, in, the, in the next conclave. I almost, and of course, you know, Bishop Barron will not, he's not a cardinal, he won't be voting. But when I read that article from Bishop Barron, I thought of the late Cardinal Pell's pseudonymous memo, um, pseudonymous, you know what I mean, uh, memo that he authored that didn't have his name on it. And I think of these synods coming up, and my sense is that the, the vital center of the episcopate is starting to um, make its, make its, its uh, starting to throw its weight around, starting to make its presence known among the bishops. And that's where this really needs to happen. All the, all the strangeness, all the oddities of the last 10 years or so 
um, at the end of the day, it's really the bishops that have to address this. And my sense from Bishop Barron's article is it was almost kind of a shot across the bow and maybe something's about to happen, something good. I think I think you're right about this article. I think Bishop Barron, um, you know, this is an opportunity for him to step up, and he hit it out of the park. I don't like you. I don't agree with a lot of things he does, and uh, but this one, I have to commend him for it. It was a good fraternal correction, and it's nice to see it from bishops. Yep. You know, uh, nice to see bishops say, "Wait a minute, now what is it? What is it that we do here? You know, we got to focus on what our <laughs> mission is." So, I... yeah, I do love seeing that. It's uh, a good. It kind of restores your faith a little bit, I think in in the USCCB as a whole, because there's so many times the lay people, like you said, kind of mouth shooting off on a podcast, but there's a lot of real frustration out yep. there that isn't being spoken to. And so, yeah, well once, deserved too. Once, and this was, I got to give a lot of credit. This is a quick response, right? I mean, I think we recorded, it hadn't happened yet, but it was a very quick response to this saying, absolutely not. That's, that's not what this is about. And if, if, if this would have lingered, I guess, for longer, I think it would have made people definitely angrier and maybe have less confidence in world youth day maybe it already has but i think to know that there's still people who are going to be a part of it that have i think the right intentions at heart um give us some hope so uh after i i there's nothing i could add to that uh that analysis thank you peter that was fantastic and way above anything that josh or i could have produced thank you for coming on so uh why are movies so bad it's, it's a simple question. This is this week's Lifestyle Loop Chat. Why are movies so bad these days, specifically modern movies? The reason I bring it up, uh, we talked Sound of Freedom last week. And one thing we didn't mention is how we, we talked about Disney a little bit with the Indiana Jones sequel, but Disney really just keeps churning out these crazy high-budget flops. And when I mean flops, they've lost about an estimated $900 million on recent movies. That's not even really... Um, uh, counting, uh, gosh, it's an economics term. I'm really failing my major here. Like uh, opportunity costs. There you go. I still got it. Uh, opportunity costs. So that's not even really a full capture of the number, but some of the biggest flops that they were seeing was Lightyear lost about $106 million. Strange World lost about $197 million. And it just feels like every every movie now that comes out, it kind of has to have like a social justice element to it. You know, why? The question has to be, why should this be made now? And how can we prepared for modern audiences. I'm just curious your guys' thoughts. I mean, I did a little bit of research for this, but why? Why Why are movies, does it feel like modern movies are so bad right now? Well, it, it's not just the movies. I think um, our culture in general, particularly entertainment aimed at children or at young people, uh, it's really lost their way. You spoke of the wokeness, there's the agendas, there's social justice, all of that. I, just by way of example, the fictional universe that is closest to my own heart is DC Comics. I grew up on uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Now, the cool kids were all uh, Marvel fans. I'm a geek, so I was a DC fan. Um, and I, one of the things I've noticed about DC Comics is that, and I'm not just talking about the movies, I'm talking about the actual comic books. It's easy to focus on the, the woke stuff, and that agenda is there. Superman now has a bisexual son. Uh, I kid you not. I'm not making so that up. So ran. One of two. What? Superman has a bisexual son. One of now there, there's more, didn't know that there's more than one Robin, <laughs> as in Batman and Robin. The third Robin is now also bisexual. There's a awesome. There's a gay Aqualad. There's a uh, a a non-binary Flash. I mean, they're out of their mind. Oh yeah, wait, wait, Peter, Peter, did could you bring yourself to watch the new Flash movie? Or I did watch it. 
Um, okay, I, well. I had to watch it. Um, it's really what they did with the AI towards the end. I found very disrespectful where there's this alternate universe and you see Christopher Reeve, Superman looking on approvingly. And it was, it was really, um, it was kind of shameful. I'm glad they put the Snyder verse out of its misery. I hope James Gunn does a better job with the reboot of the DC universe. Did, you, you didn't find any issues with, uh, the main character may, maybe allegedly, uh, being grooming, grooming young kids and going by different weird pronouns oh, yeah. to get out of jail. The, so the, any issues so with that? The, um, yeah. So you're, you're talking about the actor rather than the, the character he plays, but the, but the, uh, there was a moment where the actor is uh, the character, the, the character he plays, the flash is looking at this other guy and trying to figure out what to do with them. And at one point he says, maybe I could drug him." And my, my 18 year old son turns to me and says, Oh, he just broke character. <laughs> That was that was my son's reaction. He broke the fourth wall. Character. <laughs> the actor's not supposed. He he just was his real self there. Um. So that was a problem. But I mean, our our culture. Look, what I wanted to say yeah. is this about those agendas. Like the deeper problem with DC Comics, with the is that what is what are what the Disney movies and the superhero stories? What are they? They're a very basic fable of good versus evil. And in order to write those stories, you need to believe in good versus evil. You need to believe in moral truth. You need to believe in objective reality. And unfortunately, we have a culture now that's producing creators and writers that don't believe in these things. And so these other things that, you know... They believe in relativism. Yeah. So, right. so that the Superman having a bisexual son and all that, these things are actually the symptoms of a deeper problem, which is that, you know, we become completely unmoored from our from our moral foundations, from any sense of in objective reality and that's why dc comics and by extension i'd say disney movies are so bad well yeah so here's the thing i mean if you think about like in the last 30 years or whatever in terms of movies that are great for kids family movies pixar was was totally in charge i mean there's so many good movies i love toy story cars yeah, I mean, all these great movies cars and you know, after a while, they they every one of them was like a hit. I mean, boom, boom, number one, number one, number one, number one. They were just they were killing it. They gold medals every time, right? And they, um, and then Disney's like, we need to do this. We need to buy them out and just make it part of our Disney universe. And that was smart thinking on them. But then they made it. What well, the problem is, it's the same thing with China and Hong Kong, where it's like the hope of the West was like, if China absorbs Hong Kong, that maybe. China will become more pro-freedom and pro more free market. Like, <laughs> right around. Yeah. It's not happening, and it's not happening with Disney and Pixar. Uh, Barbara Nicolosi wrote about this, actually, National Catholic Register. She said after the, uh, Pixar had rung up so many of these hits, they actually put together a list, uh, the, uh, Pixar's comp uh, 22 rules of storytelling. And it just kind of explained what was the magic, the secret sauce behind all these Pixar movies, right? And she makes the point, like, their new movie, Elemental, violates all these rules. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you need to have compelling stories, you, you know, and you need to have an arc and all this. And what's the point of, you know, the, telling this story, this tale? And you're just, well, if you completely go, again, it's mission creeped. You know, like, when you when an organization completely goes against its founding, it's not it's not long for those this world. And so... Pixar, as we know, is kind of dead. A lot. It, it's the same thing with Disney. Like, they're they're drifting away from that initial spark, 
you know, that Walt Disney had for telling stories and captivating audiences and giving something, someone something to dream about and, and imagine. And now it's just, well, we need to make sure we do a checklist story where we have, you know, the every single, you know, minority or whatever. It's like, but I mean, I don't have a problem with, I don't have a problem with, you know, uh, a Hispanic or a black, but Disney princess, of course, the thing against group, that's a great thing. Like tell more stories. But let it still be about the human heart and let it be about a, a tale of good and evil. Well, like we all deserve to have these kind of stories. Comment on the his, Hispanic Disney princess. Okay. So the Disney, the, the Brothers Grimm, the, the book, the, the story was written because it was described in the book. She had porcelain skin. It was written about a German princess. And so I just think that's kind of like it's lazy to try to take a classic story that people know and then, all right, we're going to reinvent it for new modern audiences so we're just going to take someone of a different race and none of the dwarves can be funny they all have to be really smart because if you make dwarves funny then that would reflect badly on this community that the small people community or whatever so like just create a new story right well why do you have to go that's take what I, that? I would say create a new story yeah like right. it's not There's that it's offensive it. per se but i'm just like it's just so lazy like why would you not just take a new create a new story some of that resonates and I, you made a lot of interesting the point points is there. why don't they deserve a new story they do, right? But and then that maybe gets a little bit. That's more my into point. The... Like, why do they always have to take the other stories? It's not like it's not. Oh, you're offended because you're a white guy. I don't right. really care. What do I care? But I think I that probably gets more into the business. Not losing any sleep here. There's a business. There's a business element to all of this in terms of like streaming platforms and how you just you it's you need to give people a reason to take a risk on you now. It's not like there was a there was more opportunities to make original content previously. But I'm not even here to get into all that. I think to Peter's point and to what you were saying, um, movies. I think the recent financial um, disasters are kind of reflecting this. Movies need to uh, relate and connect to truth and reality and, and beauty. And they're so obviously not doing that right now, but they're being kind of like spiffed up to, and, and glossed up to, to look like this should be truth or reality. And it's still not truth and reality. So it's, it's, it's not performing. And it, it makes me think back to, um, I read a book actually on um, the founder of Pixar. Really interesting story. If you want to go, was, I think it was in the 70s. He was kind of uh, on the cutting edge of computers, computer animation. And to think about the movie um, Up, if you guys have seen Up, the first minute of Up, if that doesn't make you cry, yep. I don't know what you got going on in your life. That's I awesome. mean, it is like the most yeah. beautiful. It's it's uh, yeah. it's the I don't even know how to screen. You just have to go watch. If you haven't seen it, just watch, go YouTube, first minute of Up, it'll bring you to tears. But the reason that that resonates with people is because that is what uh, everyone, I think, would hope that their marriage and life would look like, what a life well-lived looks like. And so now instantly you connect with the main character of, you know, he's relatable. And, and it just feels like there's, ironically, I think an attempt He's not to, just a grumpy old dude. Like right. He's got a backstory and you understand his heart and You understand he's, he's relatable. And and I think there's a few things that are happening in modern movies. One, there's kind of this trope of the um, the the uh, empowered female character. Um, to speak to some nerds here, this is for like the Star Wars people. What a lot of people critique the new Star Wars trilogy of failing in is that Rey is kind of like a white female Jesus and that she has no apparent flaws She's just as right. strong as everyone around her, even though she's a woman. Um, she doesn't. There's no real like learning arc. That the 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 empowered female character's arc is always, I break free from the limitations that I set on myself or that society sets on me. It's never like a real 
like that's that's not a real limitation. There's no you know? real grappling right with your challenges, right? Correct, right? There, and they can't have flaws. It's the same thing that happened in Mulan. Like the original Mulan, um, she was. By the way, I always love those. So the, hold on, the, when they have that in the movies, right? Where this female lead, she's got to overcome all these challenges that are imposed on her. You ever notice that they're all? You know, it just so happens that these women are all I don't know, remarkably gorgeous, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not like they just have a plain Jane dude, you know, like a girl that's just like, oh, boy, good for her. I mean, like right, but interesting, Daisy Ridley or whatever. I mean, interesting like, observation about that. Poor and this girl. Is, this is something that they've done to men, specifically male characters. They have made female characters, the empowered female character, much less like actual women. So they're typically not nurturing. They're not emotional. They're not, they don't have any tendencies that actual women you'd know in your life have uh, because that's the nature of a woman. Uh, they end up being kind of like off-putting, uh, arrogant, uh, always uh, self-assured, like never have have confidence breaks because they can't, you can't make that critique on women now because that would be considered against the feminist movement or against the less empowering. However, if you look at men, men are irrational, dumb, lazy. Like if you look at the ideals of men back in movies in the like 60s, 70s, 80s, like they were kind of like uh, strong uh, they were a decisive, little bit um, decisive, brave. brave, wise. And and if you look at men in movies now, typically there has to be the anti-hero of, of, of a man who's none of those things. But the way that they're acting, it's justified through the storytelling. So it's, I think the biggest critique for me is they don't, they're not connecting with reality. And, and I think be, the, my argument for objective truth is kind of in why movies have done so bad is they don't connect with objective reality and therefore people can't connect to them. So uh, we now move into the Twilight Zone. So I'm up first. So uh, former President Barack Obama, some could say he's still the president, but I'm not here to have that debate. Um, I'm here to talk <laughs> about why he is celebrating Banned Books Week. So uh, this feels oh, like a tale. This old trope. Tale as old as time. Uh, the left continues to uh, talk about how bad banning books are and how it's bad for democracy. I have a quote from it. Because the ability to learn about each other and engage with different ideas doesn't just open minds and broaden our perspectives. It brings communities together and strengthens our democracy. Democracy always gets brought up. Um, this is somewhat of uh, actual direct critique on one of our initiatives here called Hide the Pride. Um, the reason being is none of these um, people, uh, specifically Barack Obama here or uh, news outlets, specifically left-leaning, will ever post or print what the actual books yeah. that we have issues with are. Uh, two of the examples are a book called Lawn Boy and This Book is Gay. Um, they contain graphic child pornography and one of the books actually encourages kids and teaches kids how to use the internet to find sexual partners. Now, um, no one ever talks, no one ever shows the books that we have issues with and maybe acknowledges that some of these books maybe don't have any place in anywhere near a child or a public forum where people can find them. It's always just used as kind of a hammer issue to uh, attack people that they dislike, right? Because it's just not a good faith engagement with the issue. And so Barack Obama, to his credit, is super slick. He always has been. The way that he wrote about it, of course, was uh, probably looked over by a few PR people, and it sounded great. <laughs> it sounded very altruistic. You know, he just wants kids to read. Um, but just continuing to not engage with the substantive issues that we have with what the heck is in our library right now, and a lot of it is porn. Speaking I mean, of libraries, maybe somebody should go to Chicago and read the gender queer book right outside the Barack Obama Presidential Library and say, "Hey, let's get the TV cameras." He thinks this book is, shouldn't be, you know, every kid at every li public library should get it and just start reading aloud and show pictures to the TV cameras and 
Peter, Peter, I'll get right. you a flight if TV, you want to do it. No, <laughs> TV cameras won't. They can't put it on TV because it's it's I'll probably get arrested. It's right? obscene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think right. you're defending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Such a bizarre thing that this is kind of Twilight Zone. The lines have been drawn now for so long. It feels like we've done the initiative for two years, and this is still. But here's the thing, though. Like conservatives, ten years ago would have been too afraid to push back at this because they're like, well, if we attack them. And these horrible books that they get in the libraries, then they'll call us book banners and they'll say we're Nazis and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. They basically said Kavanaugh was a Nazi. They've everyone's said everyone's a Nazi. a Nazi. Like everyone's a Nazi. Yeah, I mean, so like, um, let's stand up for our kids and defend this stuff against this nasty pornographic smut and push back and fight. They're gonna call us thieves anyway. So you know what? What what do we gotta lose? I wanna, I wanna say something about that. Um, you know, twenty years ago. I was in the gay marriage fight. I've been I've been in these fights all along. I know you have too, Josh. And it's striking to me that 20 years ago, you didn't. Of course, we won all those um, all those ballots. You know, all the all the um, referenda on the state level. Right. But at the same time, I must say, there really wasn't a grassroots uprising against gay marriage the way there there seems to be bubbling up against the trans stuff. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is 20 years ago, people stumbled over answering the question, well, how does this affect you personally? And of course, there actually were answers to that, but they didn't really connect as much yeah. as they should have. No one has trouble answering the question today, how does the trans stuff affect you personally? Because it's everywhere. It's in the schools. Let me tell you what they're doing to my children without my permission or knowledge. Let me tell you what's in the library. But there's another thing. And I think you hit on it when you said 10 years ago, um, conservatives wouldn't fight this, but now they do. Today, what's the difference between 20 years ago and today? Well, we've got Catholic Vote. We've got the Daily Wire. We've got libs of TikTok. What did we have for conservative media 20 years ago? We had the Fox News Channel and National Review, and they were kind of on the other side. Uh, what we have now is we, we have, frankly, I mean, Catholic Vote's role in leading the fight against the, the um, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at, uh, at the L.A. Dodgers. Right. Everything a daily, daily Wire has done, all the Matt Walsh stuff with what is a woman. I mean, the, what, we ha what passed for conservative outlets, conservative media 20 years ago, they really didn't have the backbone to do this stuff. It's you guys in similar outfits, things like Libs of TikTok and Daily Wire. Like People, people were hungry for this. They were looking for leadership, and now they have it. Well, I think National Review is trying to play the 2005 Mike Pence kind of Republican Party. That's what they want. Now, the reason, I, the difference, though, I, I agree. You hit on it. There's an article written in The Spectator by Glenn uh, Greenwald. He's a, he is left-wing. He's married to a man. Uh, but he's not as crazy as so many on the left is. Are, he's I like uh, classically liberal is how I'd probably describe him. I guess so. I mean, certainly no, he's no social conservative. Obviously, nah. he's an anti-woke liberal. Man. That's what I oh, call here's, him. Right. Yeah. He's, he's an, yeah, that's about it. That's about it. And he said, what destroyed the culture war consensus was their cynical and self-interested decision. He's, he's talking about LGBT activists. Their self-interested decision to transform the LGBT cause into one that no longer focused on the autonomy of adult Americans to live freely which most people support, but instead to demand the right to influence and indoctrinate other people's children. And there's, that's the ballgame right there. Most Americans 
my age, you know, Generation X was the, I would say the decisive generation that gay, said yes yep. to gay marriage. Generate My generation was like, whatever, who cares? Let them do whatever they want to do. But my same generation was like, wait a minute, you want to shove these books on my kids? You want that man dressing up as a woman twerking in front of my kids? Heck no. And uh, they didn't even say it like that. And so <laughs> that's what's changed the ball game on this and uh, tr transformed public opinion on this pretty quickly. And then the trans movement uh, as a layer on top of that, you know, trying to deny that there's male and female, which everyone's like, well, wait a minute now, every time I take a shower, I know there's a difference between male and female. And the fact is, you know, we're, we're getting pushback finally on this stuff. And even Generation Z, I saw polling numbers that Generation Z's um, are starting to come around and now a majority of them believe they're actually just two sexes. Like, ah, we're getting yep. somewhere, climbing out of this ab abyss, out of, well, uh, out of the cave. I think the kids call it the kids call it Gen Z. Just a heads up for those of us in here. I appreciate the respect. Um, okay, Zoomer. <laughs> all right, Mercy, your twilight zone. What you got? Well, nothing too crazy. I mean, it's just you know, here's you know, we we saw in the month of June, Rainbow Skittles Month, where we had so many government buildings of our own, right? Like even the Vatican Embassy, in the U.S. Embassy in the Vatican, putting up the the rainbow flag. You know, the it's it's the it's the flag of our current empire. And, uh, but here's the twilight zone, which is actually kind of normal. Uh, if you really think about it, two city officials in Hamtramck, Michigan were fired because they put up an LGBT pride flag. How about that? Like, well, that is why? twilight. Like you yeah. never get, you never get rid of government officials yeah. ever. And they got rid of them. Why? Cause they put up a pride flag because the, the, the city council in Hamtramck, which for people who were, might know this, this is a little city just outside of Detroit. Used to be like 140% Polish, Polish, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Pope John Paul II visited this uh, city in 1987. Sweet pierogies. Uh, now the city council is 100% Muslim. Oh, and yeah, and they were not. They do. They passed a resolution the other month. They're like, uh, no, 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 no more of this uh, political flags. The only flags that are appropriate, the U.S. flag, the Michigan flag, and if you do like a, you know, uh, MIA, missing in action, POW kind of flag, but pretty much that, that's it. No political flags, no nothing, nothing. And these two employees uh, violated that, and they were shown the door. So that's for, it's Twilight for, Zone just because it's- To be clear, kind of for violating the law. For violating Which the law. Which is that the Twilight Zone element of this is that for violating the law, someone actually had- was held accountable for doing so instead of promoting. And they were government employees and they were let go. Yeah, right. How does that happen? It's amazing. That is Twilight Zone. Uh, Peter, what are you cooking? So I know that it's uh, like shooting ducks in a barrel during Twilight Zone to reach for something from libs of TikTok. But it's been a slow week, so I've got a libs of TikTok thing. And what... We'll allow they, it. <laughs> there, there's a guy... That libs of TikTok shared his his TikTok video. A guy who says he he wants to become a woman. He wants to become a trans woman, so that he can be the first trans woman to have an abortion. He wants to become the other sex specifically for that purpose. And you think you know in that world, like could things get any any more demonic, any weirder? But this guy wants to become the other sex specifically so that he could uh he can take a life so pete uh peter if i could ask you a question then 
Because I thought people said that abortion was supposed to be safe, legal, and rare at one point. Is that still the status uh, quo? Or is it, it <laughs> or is it I transitioned to kill? Uh, okay, sorry. I just want to make that I'll tell you another Twilight Zone, and this is a Twilight Zone for old guys, is that we all look back on Bill Clinton as a moderate on abortion. Because if you live through the 90s, I mean, the, he, was, he was vetoing bans on partial birth abortions. He was the most radical pro-abortion president we ever had at the time. And now we look back at him as a moderate because he because of that phrase, uh, safe, legal and rare, which they got rid of. Yeah, you won't find safe, legal and rare no. on TikTok, man. TikTok is a lot is the wild, yeah. wild west. You get stuff like that. But I mean, the point is, though, like what you're right, though, like, like, why would you aspire to commit an abortion? But this person well, everyone wants demonic. to be the first. It's, right. It's so demonic. it's like I, I this man's thinking I want to become a woman. So that I may be the first man to become a woman to what have a baby? No, to kill one. Like, and it, and it, it, you're right. It's Twilight Zone. It only makes sense if you understand, as Peter Crave said, that abortion is the sacrament yep. Yep. of the sexual revolution. That abortion is the Antichrist demonic parody of the Eucharist. That it uses the same holy words. This is my body with the blasphemous opposite meaning. I thought Peter Crave yep. absolutely nailed I, I'll it. I'll tell you that. too, Josh. You um, you speak of 2005 Republicans. One of the striking things, like you said, this guy, it's not safe, legal and rare. It's it's shout your abortion, switch genders so that you can shout your abortion. When I talk to people my own age uh, who are who are pro-abortion or pro-choice, as they would call it, just as there are 2005 Republicans, there are 1990 pro-choicers. And they'll still t tell you that, oh, nobody wants an abortion. Nobody nobody is in favor of abortion. And they have not catch up, caught up on these latest developments that people are going out of their way to shout their abortion, to tell you how proud they are that they had their abortion without it. I never would have gotten this Golden Globe. There never would have been Fleetwood Mac. And now it's come to this. We've got a dude who wants to turn into a woman specifically so he can have an abortion. Madness. Yeah. Do uh do we so true. do we have so uh, any uh anything to bring us up before the end? <laughs> any uh fun insights uh light stories? Cause that was a little heavy. Well, that was heavy, but mine. That's why you should end well, with Twilight Zone. Mine was sorry. A I'll I'll tell true. you this. Here here is, and you know what? Not everything is not everything is cookies and cream. Okay, bro. <laughs> Cookie, but the cookies are pretty good though. Cookies and cream is a good flavor. But look, I mean, we can be glass half full or glass half half empty, right? Here's glass half full. World Youth Day is coming up. My 16-year-old daughter will be there with, uh, with a group of young women from Opus Day. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and, and there will be evangelization. There will be everything. That's a huge gift that Pope St. John Paul II gave to the church specifically for the purpose of evangelization. If you're our age, if you're my age, you remember, uh, even whether you were there or not, you remember 1993 Denver and the incredible impact oh, that, uh, that it had on the church in this country and on the Catholics of my generation. Amazing. So, um, you know, I mean, the church is not... Hopefully bishops will be watching yeah. and some of them will be evangelists yeah. too. So, that I mean, that's... That's a good point. Yeah, I'm my, excited for that. Yeah. I'm excited for that event. Going to be good. And if if Catholic Vote wants to, to cut a check so I can fly out there, I'd be happy to go to cover it. So, um, with that... Yeah, let me see what I can do. <laughs> And with that, we, uh, we're going to end it here. Uh, Peter, if people want to uh, support your work, if they want to see more from you, where should they go? So the Family Institute of Connecticut's website is ct 
thefamily.org. You can go there to learn more about uh, what we do. And if you want to connect with me personally, facebook.com slash Peter Wolfgang. All right. So that over there. Um, but with that, we're going to sign out. We have uh, St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. Pray for all the listeners. And we will see you next Thursday. Bye, guys. <laughs>